Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Everybody's worried about the coronavirus, but should you be worried about the coronavirus? And what should you worry about specifically? At Washington University School of Medicine, that's not just an intellectual exercise. The medical school and the hospitals that it works with have to be ready for infectious diseases like this and be ready with a game plan both to help the public and to keep its staff ready to help the public. So here today to discuss what they're doing in preparation for this contagion and why is Dr. Stephen Lawrence. He's an associate professor of medicine and assistant dean for curriculum and clinical science at Washington University School of Medicine. So, Dr. Lawrence, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. So, I'm wondering, are you surprised the St. Louis area hasn't had a confirmed coronavirus case yet? You know, um, when situations like this arise where there are travel-related illnesses, in some ways, with St. Louis being in the center of the country, we do give ourselves a little bit of extra time. And so it's not unusual for these emerging illnesses to reach the coasts first and uh, then um, gives us the advantage of some more time to prepare. So do you think it's only a matter of time before it's here? Mm, I think it is almost a certainty that we will see cases of this uh, infection the question is when, and the questions will be how um, heavily we will be impacted. Yeah, and it's sort of that latter question that I think a lot of people are wondering about. I mean, do you foresee this being, if, if things sort of stay on the path they're on, is this something that is going to just overwhelm this region? You know, um, there is a lot of uncertainty still, um, but there are many things that are can be and are being done to minimize the impacts of it. And and one of the things that is uh, still an uncertainty that will give us a much better picture of the overall impact we'll have both here but across the country is getting a better handle on exactly how a much severe illness this virus causes. You know, right now there has been um, a lot of discussion about and all of the information really says that perhaps two to three percent of people who have this virus will die from it. But we're limited by the fact that there are so many cases that we think we're not being caught mm. that it's a little bit of a falsely elevated number. So we um, hope and certainly anticipate that there, with additional data, we might find that the actual mortality rate of this is maybe more along the lines of influenza, which is still important, sure. but it's a different story than 2 or 3% of people dying from it. So President Trump might actually be onto something, however inelegantly he arrived there. Um, you know, I think that we will know more once the you know, we have better diagnostic testing uh, capability. That is one of the biggest keys right now when it becomes easier to do more tests on more people will have a much better picture of what this really looks like. And I'll tell you, we, we have a little bit of um, perhaps insight on this from South Korea. South Korea has mm -hmm. been testing um, in some days up to 10,000 people a day. Whoa. That's a huge capacity. And so they have identified many, many cases. They're one of the top two or three countries with number of cases now after China. And that, um, but what it also tells us is their their mortality rate is also very low. It's around 1% or less. So they're doing okay over there. So, well, by okay, I mean, I think they're certainly dealing with a lot of ill people that need to have care. And a lot of people who have illnesses that aren't COVID-19 who still come into the system and it does stress mm -hmm. the healthcare system. And so, um, however, the information we're getting from there gives us a a little reason for optimism that perhaps this, you know, this isn't maybe as severe as what the current case fatality rate is indicating. 
So if you're listening to this conversation and you have questions for Dr. Lawrence, we want to invite you to join us. Uh, you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Now, hearing about how Korea is just being able to test so many people so fast, and it seems like we're hearing horror stories in the U.S. where people go in to get tested. It costs them $3,000. Insurance won't cover it. What has Korea done properly that put them in this position? And, and why haven't we done that? Well, I think uh, one of the things that we've historically done for diseases like this is that the tests that uh, become available are um, created by usually the CDC and then distributed to state public health laboratories. And that process, um, sometimes it goes very quickly and smoothly and the capacity ramps up very quickly. And other times there may be um, technical difficulties that have led to lags in that. Um, you know, Certainly this is something that the FDA and the CDC are both working on. FDA is looking at clearing tests to be able to make them uh, commercially available tests uh, approved much more quickly. And so if and when that happens, in the next month or so, that will also really dramatically increase our capacity to be able to test. And is that something where um, that would go to Washington first or, say, a place where we already know there's a lot of cases? Or would St. Louis be able to get on that within that month's time? Once there's a commercially available test, then the rate limiting factor is how fast you can make the assays. And then they'll be distributed you know, widely. You say make the assays. Is that yeah. something that, that could be done pretty quick? You know, these are um, certainly the companies that make these You know, would have a uh, uh, much better handle on how many they could make in a day. I'm, you know, I'm not sure, uh, you know, if 10,000 a day is something that's realistic at the moment. But sure. you know, there there are multiple companies that are working on assays, though, to be able to have a commercially available one. So in the meantime, um, we see people who are um, desperate to get masks, and we see uh, Purell everywhere. We have hand sanitizer here in our very studio at, at St. Louis on the air. Um, I'm wondering what are some ways that we can actually personally reduce the likelihood of spreading this versus just dumb stuff that makes us feel like we're doing something yeah. but probably doesn't help? You know, this is a very common question, and it's really um, important. And, and this is an example of um, an opportunity for us to all be reminded of ways to help keep ourselves from getting a cold or getting the flu because the measures that we take are um, common for all of them and, and can help prevent all of them. So certainly um, frequent hand washing and and avoiding touching your um, mouth, eyes, uh, nose. Uh, and also, uh, when you do have symptoms, you know, sore throat and runny nose, that if you're and coughing, that you're uh, coughing into your sleeve and not, uh, you know, right in people's faces. <laughs> uh, you know, these are common sense types of measures. And those things actually do make some difference and they help. Um, one thing, though, I think is an important uh, thing to uh, consider is that mask usage in general public has very limited uh, benefit at all. You know, we use these in the healthcare setting and actually need them to take care of patients, not only with this infection, but many others. And uh, with the very limited benefit of walking around in public with a mask, that um, it's it's something that it's a little bit discouraging because it's kept, uh, it's affected the supplies and it makes it harder for those of us in the healthcare uh, field to be able to take care of patients who, you know, when we need it. So if we're a healthy person and we're making a run on yeah. masks, should we feel maybe a little selfish about that? That, that might not well, be our best response. Well, I, I, I tell you what, everybody in a situation where there's uncertainty tries to find ways to do things to make them feel safer. And it's understandable that that's something that um, you know makes a little sense when you think about a respiratory illness, that that might be a way to do it. But 
you know, the science really wouldn't indicate that out in public, walking around in general, when you're not having a lot of really close contact with a lot of people, uh, that it would uh, be very unlikely to play a significant role in reducing transmission. So it's understandable why it would be an attractive way to try to help reduce uh, infection, but it's not, um, it's not something that should be relied upon. And also, um, I think it is something that should be left, uh, you know, so that these uh, supplies are available for those who really need them. I want to go to the phone lines. Uh, we have Patrick calling from St. Louis. Um, Patrick, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, thanks for taking my call today. Um, I have a real quick question. I'll keep it brief. And Doc, thanks for taking the time to answer it. I have a six-week-old at home, um, and obviously I'm more worried about the flu than I am the coronavirus as it hasn't really came to the St. Louis area. Can you speak to the news out there that this virus isn't really affecting children under the age of 10? I've read some information that the data indicates out of China that no one under the age of 10 has fallen ill or at least gotten anything more than a mild cold. And I was just wondering if you could speak to that. That's a great question. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, Dr. Lawrence? That is an excellent question and actually a very important point in that so far from what we've seen, there is very little uh, illness or especially severe illness in kids. You know, young children seem to um, almost, uh, with almost no exception, not get seriously ill from this, which is a great thing for us parents that makes us feel much more comfortable. But it's also part of the reason why this is more complicated than SARS was in 2003. It um, because we do know that children can be infected and they can carry this and have either mild disease or possibly even be asymptomatic. And so the very fact that this is less severe than SARS is the very reason why it's unable to be controlled like SARS was, because there are so many people uh, that are carrying it, walking around with um, in, with the virus without um, knowing that they're sick. And thus, if you don't know you're sick, you can't isolate and you can't avoid other people. And so it's a little bit of um, a blessing and a curse at the same time. But the good news is for all of us with children that our children so far um, appear to be um, very, very unlikely to get sick from this. Boy, that is some good news. And, and as you say, some complicated good news. But Patrick, thank you for that question. And congratulations on your baby. That's That's awesome. Um, I'm going to go back to the phone lines. Robert is calling from Frontenac. Um, Robert, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Thank you for taking my call. My question is, on washing your hand, what kind of soap? Can you use regular soap or antibacterial soap, which I think in the past has been discouraged? Uh, Robert, that's another great question. Dr. Lawrence, thoughts on that? Yeah, sure. You know, so soap in and of itself, you know, uh, is antibacterial because, you know, the, you know, the materials in soap, for the most part, it disrupts the um, cellular membrane of many bacteria. It can disrupt, uh, you know, the vi- and viruses as well. And so um, the, the real key with any soap, though, is that you're washing your hands for a long enough period of time. So it's about 20 seconds or so where you're, you know, rubbing your hands together, making sure you're getting all surfaces. And so it's more the technique and the attention to washing hands that's more important than the actual type of soap that's used. There has been some uh, discouraging, uh, you know, there's been um, a push away from antimicrobial soaps because it does, when it's used in large quantities um, in communities, it can lead to an increase overall in antibacterial resistance that would make it um, harder to uh, treat some bacteria with antibiotics. 
Uh, Robert, thank you for that call. That's a, that's another good question. Um, we're talking to Dr. Stephen Lawrence. He's an associate professor of medicine and assistant dean for curriculum and clinical science at Washington University School of Medicine. We're going to take a break here in just a moment. But if you want to join our conversation, if you have questions for Dr. Lawrence or for our second guest who will be joining us in just a moment, we're staying on this topic after the break. And you can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air, or you can email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. And now we're going to take that break. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Welcome back. We've been talking about the coronavirus with Dr. Stephen Lawrence. He's an associate professor of medicine and assistant dean for curriculum and clinical science at the Washington University School of Medicine. And we're also joined now by Sean Whelan. He's head of the Department of Molecular Microbiology at Washington School of Medicine, uh, Washington University School of Medicine. Sorry, I'm tripping all over myself. Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And we do have a number of callers who want to join this conversation and also some questions that are coming in from email. But, Sean, I wanted to start by just asking you a little bit about the work you're doing on this. Um, scientists from all over the world are looking for treatments and vaccines for coronavirus. What, is, what do those efforts look like here in St. Louis? Um, so uh, when we became aware of the emergence of this virus, uh, a number of investigators at WashU School of Medicine, myself included, um, began to talk about what we could actually do that builds upon our strengths and expertise in related viruses to try and do something that would be useful to maybe interfere with the replication of this virus. And so what that effort looks like amongst uh, many different uh, in, uh, researchers in the community is um, that people are advancing candidate vaccine approaches and people are also advancing candidate approaches to identify antibodies that are made in people who've recovered from infection that may be used therapeutically to treat other patients um, uh, who are infected with the virus. Dr. Lawrence, I'm wondering from a containment perspective, what's more important here, getting a vaccine or getting some sort of treatment? Oh, by far, it's going to be more important in the long term to have an effective vaccine because that actually prevents the illness, prevents spread of illness. Uh, treatment is really only then applicable when you have, um, when somebody's already sick. And mm -hmm. in that case, it may, re even if a good treatment exists, it will reduce illness, uh, but it won't um, eliminate it, whereas a vaccine would. So Dr. Whalen's work with the vaccine is uh, going to be more important than antivirals. And so you're personally working on this vaccine front. Can you tell us a bit about that? So my own lab's interest in this is to take a virus that's actually innocuous for humans called vesicular stomatitis virus, which most people won't have heard of, but it actually infects livestock. And uh, a number of years ago, Heinz Feldman, who was at the Canadian Public Health Agency in Winnipeg, Manitoba, replaced the surface protein of that virus with the surface protein of Ebola virus. So he made what we term a chimeric virus. And in fact, that virus is now used clinically in humans, and it's distributed by Merck and is the Ebola virus vaccine. 
And so we're using the same approach. We're genetically replacing the coat of this virus, vesicular stomatitis virus, with the coat of um, COVID-19. And we hope that that will be a vaccine candidate. So this is an experimental vaccine candidate. It's a long way to go from having a vaccine candidate to actually having a vaccine. Um, and even if we're successful in demonstrating that that vaccine candidate can elicit the induction of antibodies that can protect even a small animal against the challenge with wild-type virus, so the circulating COVID-19 virus, um, it's still a long way to go from there to actually having something that's useful in people. Would that be too long a way to go to make a dent in this particular outbreak or not necessarily? Um, that's a very difficult question to answer. Um, uh, you know, if you look at a virus uh, that was emerging like Zika virus, where um, a couple of years ago everybody was very concerned about uh, Zika infection, Zika infection seems to have waned and therefore no vaccine was actually brought to market in mm. the time between, it wasn't that people weren't trying to develop vaccines, lots of people were trying very hard to develop vaccines. So I think it's just an unknown. But this virus does seem to have spread significantly, and I suspect very strongly we will need a vaccine ultimately to counteract this virus. I see Dr. Lawrence nodding. This is one where you think it'll be going on long enough um, and, and important enough that vaccine's mm -hmm. going to be essential. Yeah, I think this virus has staying power uh, compared to some of the prior ones. You know, SARS was contained. Zika burned out. Um, I think the signs are pointing towards this virus becoming a part of uh, what we call endemic, where we would see it on, a, on an annual basis. So say that we got a vaccine. Um, is there modeling on how long it would take to actually stop something once it's, it's hit total outbreak status? Um, so there are two viral diseases that have been eradicated from the globe as a result of vaccination. One is a viral disease of humans, smallpox, mm -hmm. um, which was globally eradicated in 1980. And the other is actually a viral disease of cattle, uh, rinderpest, um, which is actually somewhat related to measles virus. Um, people have been trying since the uh, 1980s to globally eradicate polio virus. We're close, we're not there. And people have been trying to globally eradicate measles virus. And we know how well that's going because of vaccine compliance issues. Yeah, we're, America's not with that program, but it sounds like should be. Um, so, so that's interesting. This could go in any number of directions, it sounds like, depending on some of the work being done locally, and I know in many other places as well. Um, what would be the best case scenario for what could come out of one of these labs here in St. Louis? Um, I think it's very, very difficult to predict um, uh, what the best case scenario is. I, people should really view this as a pipeline. And we need to stock as many different candidates at the front of that pipeline because we have no idea at what point they will fail. But if you look historically at both um, countermeasures, so drug development and vaccine development, many candidates fail along the path to clinical, uh, to approval and use in humans. And because of that, we need to have many, many different irons in the fire. Mm -hmm. 
Thankfully, there are many groups around the country and around the world that are trying to do this. And I note that, in fact, um, there is an RNA-based vaccine candidate that has actually started to go into people um, in early stage one clinical trials. Um, so I'm hoping that this will turn out to be faster than what historically has been possible. But making a prediction about how long it will take is really quite challenging and nobody really knows. We're talking to Sean Whelan. He's head of the Department of Molecular Microbiology at Washington University School of Medicine. And we're also talking to Dr. Stephen Lawrence, an associate professor of medicine and assistant dean for curriculum and clinical science at the Washington University School of Medicine. And we have many, many uh, callers who would like to join our conversation. So I'm going to go to the phone lines. And Dale is calling from Hillsboro. Um, Dale, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Uh, yes. I just wanted to, to mention that I, I'm being treated for cancer, and I was at the Barnes-Jewish-Seitman place just this morning in South County on 55, mm-hmm. and they are short of masks. They're normally short of masks? I, yes. When I get my, normally when I get my blood work done, uh, they give me a mask, and the nurse has a mask. Well, today the nurse told me that they are even a place like BJC is short of masks because people are buying them and hoarding them or whatever term you want to use, mm-hmm. and uh, and they can't even get enough masks. Wow! For the and there was one other quick thing is when I was talking to my oncologist, and I can't verify this, but he told me that. Supposedly, there was a person who worked at Mercy who was stealing masks and trying to sell them to make money. That is terrible, if true. Um, Dale, thank you yeah, so much for that he call. Was fired. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was he fired. Was, yeah, he was fired, but... And I can't verify that, but I have no reason to doubt it. Dale, thank you very much for that call. Dr. Lawrence, that goes back to what you were saying. Not everybody mm-hmm. needs a mask. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, there is, because of such a high demand uh, for use that may not be that helpful, there are sometimes some problems with the supply chain. You know, there's not a mask shortage within BJC or the BJC hospitals as a whole, but there might be little pockets every once in a while that runs a little low because of that, um, you know, dwindling supply. And so there, you know, but there's not like an overall um, shortage or, you know, uh, absence of masks. But I think, you know, the other point is well taken. This is a time where people uh, sometimes take uh, opportunities and we saw this with SARS too some yeah $10 masks can bring out the worst in people let's go back to the phone lines Valerie is calling from Belleville Um, Valerie hi you're on St. Louis on the air hi thank you for taking my call I wanted to um, ask the doctor about hand sanitizers Um, I'm an RN and I have a daughter who's an emergency uh, department RN in Seattle, Washington. So they're seeing quite a few cases there. And um, healthcare professionals are required to use a hand sanitizing product in between hand washings when taking care of patients, um, as well as the general public has been really, you know, encouraged and been, you know, been kind of a run on hand sanitizers recently. And I just wondered if he could comment on the efficacy of hand sanitizers in preventing the spread of coronavirus specifically, but even also the flu virus. So is it mm-hmm. antiviral as well as antibacterial? Valerie, those, those are some great questions. Uh, Dr. Lawrence? 
Yeah, the hand sanitizer is an option for hand hygiene, just like washing hands with soap and water is. And they, um, when they're done correctly, both are very effective at reducing uh, the risk of acquiring viral and bacterial infections. And so there's not necessarily a preference for one or the other. And there is reason to believe that uh, proper hand hygiene use will decrease uh, the risk of any one of those, a common cold, influenza, and even uh, COVID-19. Sean, I'm wondering for people working in these labs where you're trying to deal with these viruses and, and turn them into a vaccine, how do you keep from getting infected? So working with this virus in particular, um, you have to wear very specialized personal protective equipment. Um, and so you would have to wear a respirator so that you're not actually uh, uh, even if virus did um, um, move from the environment where you're actually working with it, that you wouldn't be exposed. You say a respirator. I mean, is this like we're talking a hazmat suit or? It's not quite the hazmat suit that one sees in a biosafety level four lab, but uh, you are definitely wearing personal protective equipment that is a full suit and a face uh, um, uh, mask that Mm. is a respirator. Um, And... Uh, you work with the virus in very contained, um, specialized cabinets where all of the air flow is regulated in a certain way that it, the air can only um, exit the cabinet by um, going through a very complicated filtration system that will remove any virus should hmm. it be present. That's fascinating. You, you never think about these things other than when you're watching the movies and then you can't trust them. <laughs> I think we have time for one last caller. Nick is calling from St. Louis. Um, Nick, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hey, thanks for taking my call. I have a quick question. If I do not have a spleen, should I be taking any extra precautions to not get the coronavirus? And also, am I at higher risk of uh, Coming a fatality to the coronavirus. What sort of role might a spleen play in in a disease like this? Well, The spleen itself is very useful for particularly uh, preventing serious illness from a number of different bacterial infections. And so certainly those and many people who have no spleen recognize that uh, there are some things like uh, pneumococcal pneumonia and uh, meningitis that they're at higher risk for. But it plays a role mostly for bacterial infections and doesn't play as big of a role in protection versus viral infections. So we wouldn't expect that a person without a functioning spleen would have any higher risk of this Uh, illness than um, somebody with a spleen. Well, that's great to hear. Um, Nick, thank you for that call. And one quick question in our final moments here. Um, Could a person, uh, Abigail wonders via email, could a person get coronavirus from a package that comes from China? Dr. Lawrence, any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, the short answer is unlikely, very, very unlikely. Um, This virus probably does live on surfaces for a short period of time, uh, easily and readily disinfected, um, but it doesn't uh, stay intact and for long distances, lots of handling, different weather conditions, so it would be extremely unlikely. Well, that makes me feel much better. So Dr. Stephen Lawrence of the Washington University School of Medicine and infectious disease physician at Barnes Jewish Hospital, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Sean Whelan of the Department of Molecular Microbiology at Washington University School of Medicine, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio. That's 90.7 KWMU.
Support comes from Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to sustainable and sound conservation of the state's forests, which support more than 41,000 Missouri jobs, resulting in a $10 billion industry. Choosewood.com.